people are super excited to talk about. When I've shared with some friends that I'm going to talk about end-of-life discussions, the face I get is, ooh, and uh, then, oh, bless your heart, or I'm so glad that's you, right? Um, but um, I think it's a really important topic, and I think it's been brought to light even more the last couple of years with COVID as we've had to deal with death a little bit more and people that are a little bit younger sometimes in the last couple of years. So I really appreciate you coming. Um, I think that, that a lot of people respond to fear um, when we start talking about this. But as believers, we have such an opportunity to bring hope in this situation where people often feel hopeless. So before I get started, I'm going to introduce myself. My name is Jen. I've been a nurse for 28 years. I've worked in pretty much every setting you can in oncology, I think in America at least. Um, and uh, now I'm a hospice nurse. Um, I also serve for uh, the last two years, I worked in the ICU and IMC at a hospital that uh, was caring for COVID patients. So I've gotten to see a lot of different uh, areas in nursing. Um, I also had some cross-cultural experience. My husband and I lived in Estonia for seven years. That's in Eastern Europe. We have two kids, and then my son is married, so I have a daughter-in-law as well. So that's a little bit about me. Um, just a show of hands, I want to know if there's any nursing students. We'll start off with nursing students. Woo-hoo, way to go. Um, how about med students? Yay. Um, do we have any nurses? Woo. Any nurse practitioners? Awesome. Any doctors? Woo-hoo. Um, any other uh, social workers? All right, anybody I'm missing? Students, I've got some um, MCC students here. Uh, from where my husband teaches. Um, how many of you have had an end-of-life discussion? Okay, very good. Um, and then anybody that has served overseas already? Okay, that just helps me get an idea of who I'm talking to. Um, there's lots of directions we can go with end-of-life um, issues. Um, but I want to start off with what do you hope for? That's a question I love to ask. I think that's a really great question to start talking to people about end-of-life issues. It's super simple, and um, it can go a lot of directions, and it doesn't have to be for just believers. Um, What do you hope for? And a lot of times you get things like, I'm hoping my treatment works. I'm hoping I get home for Thanksgiving. I'm hoping to see my grandkids, right? We're hoping often for very specific um, circumstances, but often those things disappoint us. And um, what do we do? Often when, and this is where we often are talking to people about end-of-life issues, is when people have experienced some disappointment. Treatment isn't working anymore. Maybe there's not a lot of hope to get out of a hospital. Those kinds of things. But our biblical view of hope isn't a circumstance. Um, Actually, the word hope is my word for this year. God often gives me a word for each year. And my word for this year is hope. And um, when you look up the biblical idea of hope, it's not in a circumstance. It's in who? Who do we hope in? And it's in Jesus we have the hope of a better future. So there is some circumstances, but it's because of who Jesus is. So our hope isn't in what, it's more in who. Something to keep in mind as we talk to people about um, what do you hope for. Um, Hebrews 10.23 says, Let us hope unswervingly to the hope we profess For he who promised is faithful. We know we're not going to be disappointed in God, even though sometimes the circumstances disappoint us. So I want to start off with a word of prayer, and then we'll dive in. 
Uh, Lord Jesus, I thank you for this opportunity to talk about a difficult subject, about um, end of life here on earth. But we know that's not where it ends. Lord, I pray that you would uh, give us your hope. And Lord, I pray that um, each person in this room would have opportunities to share your hope um, with those that are feeling hopeless and disappointed and discouraged. And Lord, I pray that you would be glorified through this talk today. I pray these things in your name. Amen. So... I want to start off with a quick definition of terms. Um, a lot of us might be familiar with these, but I just want to ha- be all on the same page. I don't want to spend a lot of time on these terms. I will have a moment for questions before we go on, so if you have a question, let, let me know. Um, but, oh, I put my thing up too fast. What's the very first thing that uh, we ask when we start talking about end of life, right? Does the patient have a DNR, DNI? Um, basically, that's, you know, we don't, the person doesn't want any chest compressions or doesn't want to be ventilated or intubated, and it has to be a doctor's order. Um, so that's, that's something that we're pretty good at um, in the hospitals. Whoops. Uh, I talk with my hands. <laughs> um, and in the hospitals, we, we're pretty good about getting that DNR, DNI on the chart when we know people want that. Um, but that's what we tend to think of when we think of end of life, right? End of life discussions, we need to have a code status discussion. I think that there's so much more than that. Um, advanced directives, those are just a very, uh, it's a legal document expressing specific wishes for end of life. And it can be complex where people lay out a lot of things or it could be very simple. But um, a lot of hospitals have those on their records um, and it expresses what their wishes are so then the doctor can put in an order for uh, DNR, DNI. Or that they don't want to be DNR, DNI. And then the other term that we use a lot is a DPOA, durable power of attorney. And that's naming a person that you would want to have speak for you um, if you can't speak. I think it's really important, no matter what age you are, to have these things in place because you never know when you're going to need it. And it really, really helps medical staff to know what you want if you can't speak. Or if your family, if you can't speak and your family doesn't know what you want, that makes it hard for them. Um, the other thing that we start talking about when we start talking about end of life is we start asking, is this patient on what? On hospice, right? That's the other word that everybody knows when we start talking about end of life. Hospice can mean a lot of things to a lot of people. Um, in palliative care, we sometimes call it the H word because nobody wants to talk about hospice. Somehow, if we start talking about hospice, you're instantaneously going to die. But um, hospice really is a service provided by Medicare that covers um, all, service, all uh, medical needs, so like your bed, uh, medical equipment needs at least, um, your bed, your bedside commode, your um, wheelchair, things like that, oxygen, and comfort medications. Um, and then it, um, it's specifically for people with a terminal illness of less than six months. Doesn't mean you're only going to live six months, but the doctor has to think that most likely you would live for less than six months. So the focus becomes less on going to the doctor, having all the treatments, all the procedures, all the tests, and so the money Medicare would spend on those, they take and put towards care for you at your end of life. So typically that's what we mean when we talk about hospice. And another term that a lot of people talk about at end of life, um, or another team of people that we talk about at end of life, is palliative care. People get confused between hospice care and palliative care. They are a little different, but they work closely together. So palliative care is um, 
is a medical specialty, just like cardiology, urology, anything else. It's a medical specialty. That's how it's billed. Um, that it provides treatments for symptoms with a life-limiting illness. It's a little different than our six months. Hospice is specifically six months or less. Palliative care, you can have still possibly years. To palliate is to relieve pain, to make comfortable. So palliative care is a lot of symptom management um, and um, providing various medications that we use to help with quality of life. Sometimes using steroids to give people more energy to do the things that they want to do. Um, we do palliative radiation to shrink tumors to give people um, more comfort in their end of life when we know that tumor is not going to go away based on with chemo. Um, dialysis can even be something that people are on in palliative care. You can't do a lot of those things. Um, well, the medicines you can, but the, the palliative radiation dialysis you don't usually do in hospice. Um, so that's a little difference between those two things. Every palliative care place is a little different, um, but that's just a broad overview. And both services offer interdisciplinary care. So they usually involve a doctor and a nurse, but also social worker, chaplain, sometimes even um, acupuncture or massage therapy, things like that, dietitian. So when a palliative care team, especially in the hospital in America, gets involved, they have something called a family meeting. A family meeting basically is just um, where they gather the person's loved ones, the people that have been involved in care, um, friends or family, whoever the patient wants um, to be there to talk about what all the doctors are saying. So they try and gather all the information of all the different specialists, which sometimes that in itself can be hard, and kind of give a, gen a broad overview picture of what, um, what the patient's life expectancy is, what their situation is, and then um, uh, they discuss what their goals are. What, are. what do you want? What are your plans? Um, what are your desires? What are the things you want and don't want? And then they get those um, documents, like a living will, DNR, and DNI in place getting the DPOA. We like letters, don't we, in the medical um, world. Um, but getting all those legal things in place. And then developing a plan of care. And a plan of care is something, you know, ideally every patient has. We use it a lot in end-of-life and palliative care to, um, to really communicate to all the specialists and communicate to all the different team members. This is what the patient wants. So it can be a really helpful tool um, to uh, communicate what just happened in the family meeting. And then kind of talk about, okay, this is where they're going. This is what the, where they, where they want to go. They want to get home. They want to go to a nursing home um, with hospice or what their other goals are. Um, so we talk a lot about quality versus quantity of life. So if you had to describe what quantity of life is, what would you say? Yeah, number of years, number of days is often what we're talking. Um, but yes, your, your length of time that you have left, that's generally what we focus on. We don't say it in those terms, but that's generally what American medicine is. I want to live as long as I can, get me better as quick as you can so I can do the things that I want to do. So that's uh, quantity of life. Um, quality of life, we start talking about that often when the risks of a treatment start to outweigh the benefits of a treatment, where the patient's constantly in the hospital, constantly getting sick, 
treatment's not working, things like that. And we start saying, is this what you want? Is this how you want to spend the rest of your life in the hospital? Fighting this disease, that is an option. Or would you rather focus on being with your loved ones or the things that are important to you? Doing maybe some of those bucket list items. Um, So kind of having that discussion about... um, What quality? What brings you joy? What brings you happiness? And this is where end-of-life discussions can be really fun because we really get to know people and find out what are their desires, what are their values, what are their hopes and dreams, and can we make those things happen? Um, Our last set of definition of terms here is um, the, the dying process. And when we think of the dying process, the thing that usually pops in people's minds is that very last stage where it's actually called active dying, right? It's when every single system is shutting down. The heart isn't working as it should, so the hands and feet are getting cold. The uh, breathing is starting to get hard. They're not conscious. They're not able to talk anymore. Um, their kidneys are shutting down. This is like last hours to last days, you know? Like this is not the time when you can have an end-of-life discussion. It's really too late at that point. The dying process really is a series of stages, and it can be years to months, or months to years, um, where um, people journey through that, and every single person's journey is different, and the length that they stay in different stages is different. Um, It can last a long time, um, and it involves a whole lot more than just the physical symptoms. There's a lot of emotional and spiritual issues that are brought up during this time people start reviewing their life and thinking about who God is and um, asking questions about what do I value. So this is a really fun time to get to talk to people, especially as believers, because people are at a time when they are open to talk about who God is. And you can have some really sweet conversations um, in in this stage of life. So I went over a lot of terms really fast. Any questions at all on those things? Hope. A biblical uh, concept of hope is putting our hope in the person of Jesus Christ, putting our hope in God. And um, through that, then we hope for a better future, maybe heaven or maybe um, a relationship with Jesus. Um, But um, the Bible Project is a great resource. They have an amazing, really nice short video on the word hope, and I really recommend that. It's it's just a fun definition. so we'll start going into end-of-life discussions. This is, this is the face that I get a lot of times, right? When you start saying, okay, we need to start having an end-of-life discussion. Ah, no, no thank you. I want to run away. Um, but yet 92% of people think it's important to talk about end-of-life wishes with their loved ones. Only 32% of people have done so. This is according to a 2018 survey uh, put up by the Conversation Project. 96% of people 65 and older consider it important to put in writing their wishes for medical care in case of serious illness, but only 25%, only a quarter, have done such a document or talked with their doctor about that, according to a 2017 Kaiser Family Foundation study. One in five people say that they have avoided the subject of dying due to worry about upsetting their loved one. Um, And the sizable majority of people say that they want to die at home, but yet 60% of people die in hospitals or institutions. That's according to AARP. 
So um, the question is, how, right? How do we start? How do we have this conversation? Um, Does it have to be formal or informal? Often it's a formal setting, like the family meeting or a code status discussion with your physician, Um, a discussion of, okay, this is where your body's going. This is what's happening in your body, so these are your options. Um, But I would like to propose the idea of uh, informal questions just being asked kind of as you go through their care, Um, as you get to know a patient over time, um, you know, just while you're waiting for the computer to boot up, while you're giving meds, while you're giving a bath, that's all from a nursing standpoint. For doctors, as you're doing an assessment, as you're um, doing, um, you know, just your general care, um, we can ask one or two really easy questions like, what do you like? What's important to you? Those kinds of things, like what kind of treatment is important to you? Um, there's so many questions, and I actually have a list of questions. I have a paper copy here, and I downloaded it. on. If you look on the description of this, this session, there's a, a, a whole page of questions, definitely not all the questions you could ever ask, but just some questions to get you thinking about how do we talk to people. And I think having these informal questions that we ask over time gets patients and family members to start thinking and giving them time to start thinking about what's important to them not in a, like, crisis situation. So if we can start having these conversations and getting to know our patients over time, we're going to know so much more what they value. And that makes having an end-of-life discussion so much easier. So when? When do we do this? And I don't think that there's one right answer to that. Um, How early is too early? I would say never is too early. I mean, for me, I want to know what my loved ones want. And knowing that and having those conversations now can make it so much easier than when they're sick and emotional about having a cancer diagnosis or whatever um, to say, okay, remember this is what we talked about. This is what you want and this is what you don't want. Um, Time of diagnosis of a terminal illness. That's often when we start talking about this, but yet they're being barraged with so much information about different treatment options and what do you want to do and plus the emotions of being told that you have a terminal illness. It's a really hard time to talk about end-of-life discussions. Um, Another time we start talking about it is when treatment fails. When we can't do anything else, we want to try talking to hospice. Uh, it's, It's not usually very hopeful. But I think end-of-life discussions can be very hopeful. Um, It can help shift our focus from, okay, I've been fighting, fighting, fighting. Now, okay, I'm going to use my time to fight for life and fight for the things, maybe not living longer, but living out my values and what I want. Actively dying, like we talked about, it's really too late to have a meaningful discussion about end-of-life. You can really only talk with the family members at that point. Some some tools that I want to share with you that are super helpful, I think. Definitely not all the tools, but just a couple that I want to point out. Um, The first one is something called Five Wishes. Um, You can look it up online. I have it on on the document. also has all my resources. It has the website for Five Wishes. This is considered a legal document in 42 states. Um, Even if it's not a legal document in your state, it's a great tool to talk to people about because it presents a lot of discussions and decisions in layman's terms. It's not super medical, um, but it talks, the first 
wish that they talk about is who do you want to care for you? So it's figuring out your DPOA. The second wish that it's talking about is what limits would you want to put on thing, on your, your care and when would you put those limits on? So it's kind of talking about your DNR, DNI. Um, it goes beyond that too. But my favorite, oops, sorry. My favorite is um, wishes three and four, which is um, like my wish for how comfortable I want to be. And it really specifically goes through, like I wish to have a cool washcloth put on my forehead. I'm always cold all the time. If anybody puts on a cold washcloth on me, they are going to get hit probably. Um, do I want my lips and mouth swabbed? Do I want my hand held? Um, my wish for how, I mean, wish for is how I want people to treat me. So like, do I want to be surrounded by people? Yes, I do. Um, my husband? Probably not. You know, like, do I want to have pictures all around? Of, yeah, that's what I want. My husband probably wouldn't want that. Um, so it really specifically talks about what things you want, and it really helps families, even if you don't use this as a legal document, it helps families kind of have an idea of the things that are important to you and the things that you would want. And then Wish 5 talks about, it starts the discussion of what I want my loved ones to know. And it starts talking about forgiveness, and it talks about sharing love, and it talks about how you want to be remembered. Super great tool to have conversations with. It's something, ah, sorry, it's something you can order online at a couple dollars. It's not very much. Um, so the next tool that I think is really helpful is something called the Conversation Project. These um, questions up here, I don't know if you can see them way back. Um, they list two different ideas and then have like a spectrum. And you can put an X on where you fall in that spectrum. So like the first, not the first, but one of the questions that I put up here is, as a patient, I'd like to know only the basics about my condition and my treatment, or do I want to know everything? Do I want to have all the details? Wow, isn't that helpful to know? Like when we're talking to our patients, how much do you want to know? Um, what are your, the last one I have on there is, what are your concerns about medical treatment? I worry I won't get enough care, or I worry I'll get too much care. What, is that? what does too much care mean to you? Each person, it might mean something different. Um, when there's a medical decision to be made, I want my healthcare team to do what they think is best. I trust my doctors and I want them to do what they think is best, or I want to be the one that makes all the decisions. And where do you fall on that spectrum? So it really gives like a bunch of really good um, perspectives on um, a lot of different end-of-life issues where you can kind of say, yeah, this is where I stand or this is where I, 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 I agree with. And it can give families ideas of what what is important to you as we talk and how much information do you want um, and how, how involved in your own care do you want to be. Like I said before, developing questions that you use on an everyday basis. Just asking people, what are you hoping? What brings you joy? What are you looking forward to? How do you celebrate the holidays? Simple questions. Those are all end-of-life questions. As we gather that information, we can have better conversations with people to help them to determine what are their next steps and what are the important things to them when um, treatment isn't working anymore or when they're tired of being in the hospital all the time. Or are they the kind of person that wants every experimental treatment and every possible treatment and they want to fight till the very end? That's an option too. And making sure that we know and we give the patients those options, like that's, I feel like, is super important and not put our own ideas 
That's sometimes hard for me to not put my own ideas in what their care is. Oh, this person's in so much pain. They're having, like, their treatment isn't going to work. Why do they want to keep fighting? Why do they want to try every like one in a million shot? Well, if that's their choice, that's, that's what they get to choose. And AARP also has a lot of great videos and tools for people to have discussions with their loved ones about end-of-life issues. So those are some end-of-life discussion tools that you can use. But again, I'm going to keep stressing this. Asking questions is the most important thing, I think. Be inquisitive. As we talk with people, you build trust. As you share about, as they share about what their values are, they might ask you about yours. You may have an opportunity to share about Jesus. Um, you can create an atmosphere of sharing. Oftentimes in the medical world, we information dump, right? We walk in, we tell them these are this, 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 this is the treatment, this is the plan, this is the medicines, this is the tests. Which, what do you want to do? You know, <laughs> they're just like, wait, I have no idea what you just said. Um, so making sure that we pause, we create an atmosphere of sharing, and we listen. I think that really is important in end-of-life discussions. So time to practice. Uh, some of you, the ones sitting on these chairs, have a little piece of paper on your chair. You can ask, preferably somebody you don't know, but just take a minute, um, find somebody next to you, and ask them either the question you have on your sheet or... A question like, what do you hope in? Or what is important to you? What are you looking forward to? So I'm going to give you two minutes to do that right now. All right. I know that was super, super short. But you all just had your first end-of-life discussion. Go you. Woo-hoo. <laughs> all right. How was that to talk to somebody? Was that hard? Any feedback? Was that hard or was it easy? Was it interesting? Hopefully, yeah. It's not hard to have these discussions. Um, it's hard when we make it about code status. It's hard when we make it about you have nothing, you know, you've been fighting for all this time and now you can't fight anymore. But what if we made it about, okay, we're shifting fo- focus. We can't fight the cancer. We can't give you medicines that are going to help you anymore. But what do you want to do? And giving them, giving some autonomy, giving some hope giving some control to the patient. Oftentimes they felt often that they have no control, that they have no freedom, that they're just constantly being told what to do. Um, So um, giving people a chance to share what's important to them and even think about what's important to them and remember what's important to them, sometimes we lose track of that. We're in the middle of a crisis. And giving that opportunity just to pause and say, what is important to you, I think, is, is, is super important and helps people kind of step back and say, wait a second, what is important? What do I want? Um, I think is, is important because so often we're just re- reacting and reacting in a crisis situation and reacting in an emotional situation. And so by giving people time to pause, I think it's very helpful for people to remember what they want or what they, they or think about what they want. The other big question in end of life is who? 
who does it? And I want to say everybody, because I think we all have different strengths and we bring different focuses. So our doctors are going to look at the situation from a treatment mindset often, um, and the specialists are, and the hospitalists are all going to come together and say, you know, this is what's working. These are our options. These are our different choices. Nurses often get a feel for what the patient's feeling about the treatment, right? They kind of have that pulse on the patient's really not excited about doing this anymore, but they feel like they have to kind of thought, or they, you know, no, this patient really wants everything. They want to try it all. Um, you know, we kind of get that feel. Um, social workers can be fantastic in helping us um, with family dysfunction and the, the, the resources families have at home, what they're living like when they're not in the hospital or when they're not at the doctor's office. Chaplains can often help us know what the spiritual mindset of the person is. Students have great time because they're often having to do, like, longer assessments. So if they pop in some of these questions while they're asking their assessments, like, we can get some valuable information from them. Um, family members are a huge, valuable part of our team. Um, and don't forget the patient. <laughs> so often we're making all these decisions, and the patient is kind of just the object. So I think a multidisciplinary team is, is always the one that's the best to work and talk about end-of-life issues. So developing a holistic plan of care. What does that mean? Um, what are the patient's treatment desires? And thinking about it more than just medical. Um, Stormont Vale in Topeka, Kansas, where I was working um, until this spring, um, had a three-pathways tool that we used in palliative care. And they talked about aggressive care. That's something that we all know and love. That's what we do in everyday medicine. You know, we want to do anything and everything, every test that we can do, every procedure we could do, any medicine we can do, that's aggressive care. That's, that's, we're fighting this illness. The other one we're familiar with is comfort care. And we're saying, no, we're not fighting this illness anymore. We're talking about our goals. We're talking about the values. We're talking about what's important to us. We're wanting to live our life as best as we can. Um, with the limitations that we have. And um, we're wanting to focus more on the thing, our values instead of going to the doctor all the time. The messy middle is the supportive care. And um, it's very gray, and it can really change. Um, but in our family meetings and when I was in palliative care there, we talked a lot about putting up guardrails. Okay, what are the guardrails that you want to put up? What are the things that you say are acceptable? Maybe I want to try this next round of chemo. I want to give it a shot and see how I respond to it. But then if that doesn't work, then I'm going to start talking about comfort care. Like what, you know, or what are the limits? When you can't get up anymore, is that when you say is that's enough? You know, like what are, what are the guardrails? What are the boundaries? What are the things that you're going to say it's time? Or what are the things that you're going to say, I definitely don't want this. I don't want to have an NG tube. I don't want to have whatever, X, Y, Z. I don't want to have CPR. Things like that. Like, what are the things that are absolute no's? What are the things that are maybes? And what are the things that are yeses? And then helping people kind of put that into a plan of care. And then as we move forward, you're saying we revisit it. And it's something that you're revisiting often. And I know uh, when I was working in the ICU, people were frustrated. They're like, they're in that supportive pathway, and that's constantly changing because yesterday they wanted it all, and today they want to be hospice. Well, that's kind of the journey that people are on, and it gives people 
a little bit of space to go from aggressive care to support to comfort care and sometimes giving them a little bit of time to say wait I'm not quite ready yet for hospice but I do think I want to try this chemo one more time or I want to do a month of dialysis or whatever it is um, I want to try this for a little while and see how I feel and then if it's not if, if, I, if I don't feel good then I can revisit it and it often gives people a lot of autonomy to be able to say yes I want this or no I don't because um, often people don't feel like they're in the driver's seat. Kind of been discussing all this through why do we discuss this? You know, to give the patient some opportunity to express what they want um, and not just treatments, but their overview of life. Like, what is important to you? Is it important to spend time with family? Um, what are the things that you want? Talking about who. Realistically, if the caregiver is an 80-year-old woman, you know, taking care of her maybe, you know, 200-pound husband, is she going to be able to lift him? I don't know. You know, those are discussions you need to have. Are there people that you can run, you support you? Are there people that you can um, get around you? Who are the family members? Maybe they have some some family members in their in their life that can come and spend time with them. Do they need some FMLA time to get away so that they can get away from work to care for their loved ones? Starting talking about what, if you were to go at home with hospice, what would you need and who is the caregiver and what are their abilities and what are their limitations? Bringing around some resources and some different churches can be a great resource. Meals on Wheels, things like that from the community that can make life a little bit more simple. Maybe... You know, the person's used to cooking for themselves all the time, but maybe if they just had a meal a couple times a week, that might ease some of their stress or somebody to shop for them. How can we make life a little bit easier for you? And again, hope. What is important to you? How can you find joy in life? Um, Are there some bucket list items that you want to try and accomplish? One of the things I loved in palliative care was um, helping people achieve some dreams and goals. And, like... One family had never been on a vacation, like their whole married life. And we got them on a vacation, and we kept this patient as strong as we could and gave them steroids and Ritalin and different things that um, would increase the energy, knowing it was going to be for a short time so that he could go on this vacation. And that was an amazing memory that they had when he passed away. Um, So really talking about what hope is and then helping people get to that goal. Encouraging life review. So like I said, when people start going through the dying process, they start really evaluating their life. What are the good things I did? What are the bad things? What are my regrets? What are the things I'm proud of? What do I want people to remember me for? Those are all great questions to ask too. But really encouraging a life review that includes gratitude, forgiveness, and expressions of love. Even secular psychologists say that this is super valuable to help people have peace in their end stages of life. Dr. Ira Bayak is an international palliative care physician, and he wrote a book, The Four Things That Matter Most. Um, And he wrote that it's super important for people to be able to express, please forgive me. These are the areas I've failed. Um, I forgive you. These are the areas I feel like there's conflict. Um, Thank you. I appreciate these things that you've done for me. Um, And I love you. 
Maybe it's writing letters to family members. Maybe it's, you know, speaking these things. Maybe it's phone calls. But when we can have people work through these things, they have so much more peace and um, have the opportunity to have closure, especially over forgiveness. When there's uh, family dysfunction, um, estranged relationships, having the opportunity to even think about it and writing a letter, even if the other person's not open to it, having them be able to write down their thoughts, that can bring real peace. Cultural competence. How do we develop awareness of what cultural and religious practices are desired? Again, don't assume. Ask questions. Just because somebody says they're a Christian or a Muslim or a Hindu doesn't mean that we know what they want, right? There's all different flavors of Christianity. There's just like there's all different flavors of um, Islam. Um, so asking, like, how, how do you practice your faith? What is, what's important to you? Um, and allow expression of desires and expectations. Some basic questions to ask in this area is asking about prayer. Is prayer important to you? How do you pray? What does that look like for you? What about music? Do you like having music? Is there a certain kind of music that brings you closer to God or brings you peace? Um, what about scripture? Is there holy readings or scripture that, that you want read or that you want around you? And can anybody read that? Or can only a imam or can only a priest or can only a certain person read this to you um, or say these things to you? Or can anybody? Can I? Um, some items. What, what items would bring you? Are there any like specific prayer beads or icons or jewelry or specific clothing that are important to you or like things to have around you on a certain holiday or festival? Are there certain practices like food, incense, bathing, or body placement? Like in the Muslim religion facing the East is super important when somebody's dying. Is that important to you? Maybe not every Muslim wants that. Asking. And a lot of times people are excited to share what's important to them. So asking some of these questions, getting to know them, and getting to know what's important to them and what they value. (sighs) What if talking about death is taboo? What do you do? That's a huge issue. Um, Often we think about when we start talking about death that it's suddenly going to happen. Um, Many people from Southeast Asian background believe that if you talk about death, that it's disrespectful, and it can actually, um, there's fear that it will bring death sooner. I've run into that in in Christians as well. Um, If we start talking about death, that, that there's fear that that's a lack of faith. It shows lack of faith and lack of belief. I had a patient once who was maxed out on three pressers. Her hands and feet, fingers and toes were falling off. Like, it was, in my opinion, it was unethical to be continuing keeping this body alive. Um, their, their intestines weren't working anymore. Stool was coming up out of their mouth. It was one of the most difficult cases that I ever worked on as a nurse. Um, and when we started talking about pos- the possibility of treatments not working, we got fired. <laughs> the family would say, you can't be our nurse anymore because you're showing lack of faith. You're showing doubt. And so then anybody that came in the room, the only people that would come in were the people that were saying, well, these are our options. We could try this. We could try this. We could try this. 
we actually had to bring it to an ethical board because we felt like what we were doing to this patient wasn't ethical anymore. But that's a, a serious you know, issue. Death was so taboo to this family that you couldn't talk about the possibility of death because they fully believed that this person was going to be resurrected, that they were going to be completely healed and they were going to walk out of this hospital. And maybe God could, I mean, maybe God could have done that. God does do miracles. But normally, medically speaking, it wasn't going to happen. And they didn't want to hear that. It's a really difficult situation. One that takes a lot of patience and tact and the Holy Spirit and just developing that relationship of trust. What if you're working in an animistic culture and um, sickness is thought to be a result of a curse or it can bring shame and punishment? Again, how do you deal in those situations? I don't have an answer for that one. But that's, that's one where you just have to, to be very careful and know who you're talking to and know what their backgrounds are. Asking those questions ahead of time about what, what are your values, what are your beliefs can be super important. Belief that a patient shouldn't know, that they shouldn't even know that they're, they're terminally ill. They shouldn't know that they're going to die. That's, that's really hard. How do you have end-of-life conversations with a family that doesn't believe that the patient should be told or that family members should discuss about this? Again, it's, it's really just building relationship, building trust, and finding out what's important to them and showing, showing grace and love as best you can through that situation. There's a, a variety of, of cultural challenges. What about collective decision-making versus individual? Here in the West, we are all about patient rights, right? We're all about the individual choice and the patient being able to say what they want or don't want. But um, sometimes people come from a collective decision-making group where it's not about one person's decision. It's about the decision of the group. And we need to be very uh, conscientious of that and making sure that we have the group together when we're having these important discussions. What about um, a patriarchal society or power dynamics? If there's a person in the family that no matter what everybody else says, what this person says goes, Right? sure you've all had those kind of situations if you've been in medicine very long. Um, patriarchal society, sometimes in a Muslim world, um, you know, believe that there's a, a male-dominant um, person that gets to make the decisions, and it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. We need to be aware of those situations and walk carefully and respectfully in those situations. But also, how do you know how to treat the patient with dignity and honesty? Those are challenging I don't have all the answers on those. Um, ideas of pain and suffering. What happens when somebody really feels like they need to suffer? They fully believe that if they take morphine, if they're having pain, that, that you're robbing them of the experience of suffering. We need to be aware of that and not put our own values on that. That can be very, very hard to know that we could do something about that pain and watch somebody suffer. But we need to know where their ideas of pain are coming from and address that and talk to them, maybe in an open dialogue about why. Why do you think suffering is important? Um, I'm going to open us up to questions, but before I do, I just want to remind us that uh, it's the God of hope that fills us with all joy and peace as we trust in him, so that as we can overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit as we go out and have these conversations. 
So I want to give you a few minutes to ask questions because I know I poured out a bunch of information and this, this is a, a topic where we can talk about a lot of different things. So go ahead. I feel like following the spirit is so important. Um, and if I'm feeling that, I'll take a, I try and take a moment to pray. Say, okay, God, is this me wanting to fix this situation? Or um, are you nudging me to share something? And what can I share? And really asking God, taking a moment to pray and follow what he says. I don't think that there's right and wrong situation, right and wrong, very right words or specific words that you say to answer that. I think it's really being led by the Spirit and following what the Spirit says and um, asking God to, to lead you. I know for sure that, that I've, I've, there's been times when I've walked in obedience and I followed what God says and I've had really sweet conversations. There's also been times when I've been afraid and I haven't had those conversations and I've gone home and said, oh, I really wish I talked to the patient. And I try and remember those convers- I try and remember those moments and say I don't want to live with regret. I don't want to do that. I want to make sure that I give people, and even just asking something like, what gives you hope? What gives you peace? Those are questions that you can ask, and it can lead to gospel conversations, but it's, even with a non-believer, it, it can um, get them thinking or get them talking about what their hope rests in. I don't know if that, does that answer your question? Mm-hmm. The one patient that I, I, that I that pops into mind when you say that is a patient that specifically requested that the Bible not be read. But this patient was being tormented, and in my personal opinion, I believe it was being tormented by a demon. He was seeing flames. He was seeing evil creatures come around us. He was being tormented, and there was definitely a spiritual element to it. Um, one of the other nurses um, was a little bit more bold than I was, and um, this is in a hospice house, and she, um, she just started reading scripture, and actually it calmed the person, and she went to this person's partner and told them, you know, I found that reading this, this she said a poem, it was a psalm, um, I found that reading this psalm is really comforting, is that okay? And um, she, she did go confess and said, you know, it is from the Bible. Um, but um, I'm finding that it gives this person comfort. And it actually did bring comfort. But for a moment, there was some conflict more with the family member than the person because this person wasn't able to have a lot of discussions anymore. But we did notice that um, when we sang and read scripture that this person was much more calm than they were when they were seeing flames and telling us that there was things that sounded like a description of demons um, around us. Uh, why did you choose end-of-life care and what led you to it? Oh, <laughs> that's a journey. I've been an oncology nurse for a long time. So in oncology, we work closely with palliative care and hospice. Um, 
I, here at the University of Louisville, worked with a fantastic palliative care team um, on the bone marrow transplant ICU. And um, the palliative care team, I thought, just did such a great job of bringing holistic care and bringing hope. Um, I don't know that all of them were believers, but they really cared and brought in a bigger scope of perspective than only pills and medicine and treatments. And so that really intrigued me after years of, of pills and medicines and treatments um, to start talking about um, like what what is the bigger picture and just being able to have those spiritual discussions with people um, that um, we lived overseas for seven years and um, when I came back to step back into nursing in the states I stepped back into hospice because I thought it would be easier um, there's less medications to be caught up on and all of that um, and Technically speaking, it's easier, but, yeah, there's a lot of um, psychological and, and uh, other emotional and uh, religious things that happen in that, too. That's the short answer. <laughs> other questions? Um, Go ahead. When it comes to pediatric patients, how do you go about uh, trying to balance the fact that some parents might think I don't have a lot of pediatric experience. I've actually avoided that in cancer because <laughs> being a mom, I felt like that was a little too hard. Um, but, um, yeah, so I don't have a lot of experience in that. I do have experience with adult children and, and their parents, like people in their 20s and 30s whose parents are still really involved in their care. Um, I think it's so much about developing a rapport of trust and openness um, I had one patient here actually at University of Louisville that um, the father was asking us to do a treatment and the patient who herself was a 20, 30 year old woman um, was saying no. <laughs> and I was the nurse that day and I had a long standing in bone marrow transplant. Luckily we had the opportunity to know people over a long period of time and this patient I had been caring for for months and knew them and their family well and um, I had to talk to the dad and say no patient is saying no I'm not going to put a feeding tube in her she does not want it and this is her choice but that's a little harder because she is 30 years old and she did have the ability to make that decision um, and so yeah I think it's really um, bringing in a team of people social workers getting involved and um, yeah just developing trust and rapport and asking questions about values and what you're hoping for and what kind of life you want your child to live but yeah, I don't have a lot of pediatric experience. But that's a really good question. Other questions? Go ahead, yep. Uh, how do you balance like, the, the focus of the conversation on the patient versus the patient's family? And like, kind of, like, as the patient, I guess, progresses further towards that, how do you kind of transition that to where you're helping the family versus the patient? Oh. It could be a dance. And with every family, it's a little different. Again, uh, following the spirit. Um, but um, I think um, it depends on if the family's open to having the discussions all together. You know, at the beginning, um, sometimes you're having conversations with this person and that person. And, you know, trying to bring them all together sometimes can be helpful. Um, 
you know, there's times when you're just you and the patient anyways, and so you're having a lot of those conversations, and then sometimes bringing what that patient said to the family member, because sometimes they're not they're not comfortable enough or feeling strong enough to say to their daughter or to their mother or, you know, some other person in their family, their dad, um, I don't want this anymore. So there's been times where a patient trusts you enough to be able to say, I don't want this anymore. And then you go to the family member and you say, um, this, this is what they're telling me. Maybe you guys should have a conversation. And if you want us, if you want a therapist or a social worker or a nurse to be with you during that conversation, you can. Or if you need to have it privately. Um, but yeah, there's there's a lot of um, reading, fam like reading family body posture and reading into the situation and trying to discern. What's happening? Who do I need to talk to? I think as the patient transitions and isn't able to um, be a part of conversations anymore, that's when we're focusing more on education for their loved ones and really walking them through. And I often just say, hey, this is what I'm seeing. Do you see this? You know, the, their hands are really cold and their, their color in their hands are, is changing. And I start trying to explain things not in really medical terms, but it, Telling them why I'm concerned and what I'm seeing and then um, showing them what I'm seeing and then asking them if they understand why that's significant and then having a conversation about what to expect if they're walking through the stages of death. Um, you know, I'm expecting next, you know, that they're going to start having some difficulty breathing. Their urine, their urine production is probably going to be less, things like that. Does that answer your question? Other questions? Go ahead. Wait, can you say that again? It depends on the ethical board. Every hospital is a little bit different in that. But if you bring a situation, I brought my our protocol at University of Louisville when I was working there was to bring the situation to our nurse manager, and then she would determine if it really was an ethical situation. She would talk with the physicians, she would talk with our um, our our doctors, um, and to say, or I often was already bringing it to the doctors at that point, saying, "Hey, I'm really feeling uncomfortable." That's usually how it starts. Not saying coming right out and say, "I think this is an unethical situation." That doesn't usually go very well. Um, but if you start saying, I'm feeling really uncomfortable in this situation, and this is why, and expressing my opinion about what I think is happening, and then they could either enlighten me as to what's really happening, since sometimes I might not have all the pictures, um, or um, start talking about, well, yeah, we have to do this because the patient's family is saying this, and then we can start saying, well, is that really what's best for the patient? And then we can start moving it forward, and there's a whole process of working forward to an ethical committee, and then the ethical committee would meet, and then they um, would be talking with the doctors, and then the doctors talk with the family members as well. And I think that they had to had to tell the family members that they were having an ethical board meeting. So there was a whole process, but probably I would imagine every hospital is a little different. But I went I went through my nursing supervisor. <laughs> so. But having an ethical committee is super helpful, especially when there's a really difficult situation. And, you know, you're allowed to bring those situations. And my nurse manager was amazing and really supportive, especially when we were feeling uncomfortable about doing something. Any other questions? Yeah. 
ahead. Is there a role do you see for um, like hospice or end of life um, services overseas or in the field? I mean, like that's my dream. Yes, my dream too. Um, Yes, and hospice is um, getting to be, uh, it's a growing field actually overseas. Um, Hospice of Africa um, is a great um, organization. It's um, in Uganda. And they, um, when I went to visit them, um, they were hoping to bring hospice organizations throughout all of sub-Saharan Africa. So they had a really big dream. They are training specialists, and they have a multidisciplinary approach where they have physicians and social workers going out to people's, I can't even say homes, because we were going out to wherever people were, and it's a completely different environment. And so, yes, I mean, caring for the dying is something that is going to happen anywhere and really hospice is bringing services to support the people that are doing that and to give them education and give them materials giving them medications and giving them physical support you know to help um, having nurses aids I don't know if that's possible yet in overseas cultures but really training people how do you bathe a patient how do you care for their skin when they're not eating anymore how do you deal with skin care how do we deal with keeping the mouth moist just really really basic things that aren't very hard to teach um, that can bring a lot of comfort to somebody and then for missionaries from yeah yeah, I think that like having some training in this would be fantastic for missionaries, especially if they're dealing with a lot of death and dying. Teach to Transform um, is a great organization. I think I believe that they're here. Um, they are developing a module on um, a dying on a hospice um, education packet that they can train missionaries in, and they do a really good job of training people in really basic skills so that they can use it and spread it. Um, in their areas. So I think that there's resources out there and I think the potential is amazing. But um, yeah, I think that there's lots of room to grow and I, I'm praying that maybe God will give me that opportunity too. <laughs> so we'll see. Any other questions? Well, thank you so much for coming and talking about end-of-life discussions. I hope that this really helps you start thinking through how to care and bring hope to people in these end-of-life times. Thank you.